1: The thing about the comic strip that is so incredible is that it is funny, sexy, emotional, and so political. These characters, yes. their politics are their emotional lives. Yeah. That was a component of the characters and of the storytelling that
0: I did not want to skip.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, whose voice was that we heard at the top of this week's episode?
0: Isaac, that was playwright Madeline George, and I was super excited to talk to her about her work as the scriptwriter for the Dykes to Watch Out for audiobook, which Audible released in June.
2: Wait, wait, there's so much stuff you said there that is like, <laughs> oh my God, Dykes to Watch Out for. Yeah, I'm like the Vince McMahon gif. Dykes to watch out for. It's an audiobook now written by Madeline George. Oh my God. So obviously, as you can tell from the excitement in my voice, I'm a huge (laughs) Dykes to watch out for fan. I know you are too. For our listeners, perhaps many, maybe the younger millennials and younger who (laughs) have never heard of Dykes to watch out for. What is it and why is it important? First
0: of all, a spoiler alert for my inevitable appearance on the BBC's Desert Island Discs. The right book- after
2: you're made a baronet, right? Right after you're made a <laughs> baronet, you'll go on I, I, think, uh, I, I think I'm going to be
0: a dame. I'm going to hold out for damehood. But, nice. Um, the book that I take to the island will definitely be a complete set of the Dykes to Watch Out For comics. So Dykes to Watch Out For was a comic strip that ran for 25 years from 1983 to 2008. It first appeared in in alternative weeklies, also in Off Our Backs. That's how I first met Alison because I was the person who pasted it into the the big sheets of paper that, uh, that we used to make Off Our Backs. And there are books, uh, which I believe Madeline makes reference to in the uh, interview. And all of these strips were written by Alison Bechtel. She called the strip A half-op-ed column and half-endless serialised Victorian novel, which strikes me as the perfect description. It was a contemporaneous chronicle of lesbian life. The issues that we were talking about, the books we were reading, the stories in the news it's a really incredible first draft of history with amazing art that got better and better over the years.
2: You know, it's like you think of that and you think of like Tales of the City, you know, these Mm. are just like very important serialized queer entertainment of the 70s and 80s and beyond. You know, I I think we should also uh, give listeners a sense of what the audio drama or audiobooks, sort of a bit of both, is like, uh, because you might be thinking out there, you know, how do you turn a comic into an audio drama? Well, here we have the voices of Carrie brownstein and roberta Calindras showing you how it's done
3: i'm in a slump lois it's time i admitted it
1: i'm going on four months without a job and i haven't had sex in almost a year i'm so sick of being celibate celibate you make it sound like a conscious choice mo
3: i know i know but
1: the opportunity just hasn't arisen it's not like i'm not putting myself out there I volunteer 10 hours a week at the battered women's shelter. I join the bat women's softball
3: team, even though I object to the militarism of organized sports. I'm doing my best to meet women. There must be something wrong with me. Well, there's nothing wrong with you, Mo. You're a catch.
0: You're shy, but but passionate, politically aware, rigorously ethical.
2: You're every dyke's dream. And June, there's some extra stuff for our Slate Plus listeners today, right?
0: There sure is. In addition to being a playwright and an adapter of comic strips to audio drama, Madeleine is also a writer on the Hulu show Only Merges in the Building, which I know we both admire very much. I personally see a lot of similarities between the two projects. And so I was really happy to have a chance to ask her what she thought about those similarities.
2: Oh, well, that sounds great. And I know we have a bunch of Only Murders fans uh, in our listenership. And so you'll probably want to listen to that. And if you are a Slate Plus member, it'll be waiting for you at the end of the show. And if you're not a slate plus member, well, really, what are you waiting for? Just go to slate.com slash working plus, and you will get great bonus segments like that one full episodes of shows like slow burn and big mood, little mood, full access behind the paywall and the ability to sleep at night, knowing that you have helped out in everything we do right here at working, go to slate.com slash working to sign up today. Okay, let's listen in on June's conversation with writer Madeline George.
0: Madeline George, welcome to Working. Oh, thanks for having me. (laughs) I'm really glad to have a chance to talk to you about your work on a project I absolutely loved, the Audible.com adaptation of Alison Bechdel's Dykes to Watch Out For, which you wrote the script for. I did, yes. I'm glad you liked it. I loved it. Uh, First, I'm curious, how did you get involved with the project?
1: You know, the whole project was the brainchild of the great and powerful Susie Bright, um, who was an editor at large for Audible at the time. And she was a huge fan of the comics and had reached out to Allison about possibly doing an audio adaptation, which I think, you know, if it hadn't been for Susie, nobody would have thought of that. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it, for those people who know the strip, it's like Allison's extraordinary visual sensibility is such a key component of it. Why would you strip that away and make an audio version? But underneath, or throughout, or as like a running like a skeleton through the entire beautiful um, many many years worth of comic strip is this incredible story that Allison built, and so yeah. it does translate in a way. And Susie could see that, and so Susie was the one who reached out to me actually not knowing that I knew Allison a a little bit socially and asked if whether I'd be interested in kind of noodling around with it and seeing if we could make episodes out of the material. And I, it's a seminal life supporting work for me. Mm -hmm. It's one of Mm -hmm. my all time favorite achievements of American literature. And so I was like,
0: um, yeah, (laughs) fully agree. Yes. Um, Again, I'm curious, though, your playwright, as I understand it, that's something you've been doing since you were a teenager. It's true. Like, that's, that's kind of almost in, in your bones. Yeah. Um, but I wonder, do you have much experience with audio drama? Um, I'm, you know, no. I'm, I'm here in Britain where radio plays are a huge thing. You know, you can hear multiple ones on the radio every single day. But until the podcast boom, at least, American writers didn't have much exposure to them, right?
1: No, we didn't really have so much of a model for that in America. But, you know, (laughs) sort of perversely, like... I came up as a playwright at a time when it was quite difficult for emerging playwrights to get their plays fully produced. And we often would spend years hearing our plays at music stands in readings that were Mm -hmm. ostensibly sort of tryouts for production, Mm -hmm. but maybe were sort of actually the place where our plays were going to die. And so um, I think that I became sort of like attuned to how to play sound above all else. And it might also be that that's actually my kind of my way into the theater. I really like talk, (laughs) you know, I like talk as action and it's not like my plays involve lots of jump scares or particular, (laughs) uh, you know, theatrical coup de théâtre um, uh, special effects or anything like that. They're pretty talky themselves. So,
0: Wow. We should also note that your household has some significant Bechdelian connections because your wife Lisa Crone <laughs> won a pair of Tonys for her work writing the amazing book and lyrics to the Fun Home musical, which also, of course, based on Alison's work. Like, had Dykes to Watch Out for been part of your life before that, or how? Oh, had, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, my first encounter with Dykes to Watch Out for was as a college
1: student, to be totally honest. Uh, my college boyfriend gave me a copy of one of the books. He was like, oh, I don't know why, but I feel like you might like this. I was like, oh, I sure do. Um, and then I, you know, it's very, I'm a huge sitcom fan. Uh, I'm obsessed with the Bob Newhart show and news mm-hmm. radio and uh to be totally honest, friends and The Office. And so for me, you know, Dykes to Watch Out For is like, it was that for me, um, mm-hmm. but for a, a lesbian world that I only, to begin with, was looking in on from the outside yeah. and then it has a certain utopian quality um, in the way that it, it sort of depicts the lives and loves and um, political strivings of this beautiful uh, and diverse lesbian community that lasts from the 80s until the early 2000s. So I had it around. I had all of the little Firebrand books, yes, which were yes. um, small, they sort of Garfield book-sized um, Yep mini anthologies. And I would just dip in and out of them all the time. Like I had them up on my desk, you know, this is years and years before I met um, the person who would become my, my life partner who then went on (laughs) to adapt Fun Home. So it was definitely a, it was in my bones. Like I I had the strips by memory, you
0: know? Yeah. 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 I totally relate to that. Um, It's interesting actually that you say that because you know, Alison and I are exactly the same age. Well, not exactly. She's, I think, one year older than me. Um, <laughs> but you're a little bit more than a decade younger. Um, did you have any issues stepping into 1987 in, in Mediores almost? like Because that's where you set the strips.
1: <laughs> I am a bit younger than, uh, than the community depicted in the strip, Um, at least in the early years, but Mm. I grew up in like sort of crunchy, hippie, lefty (laughs) Western Massachusetts. And Uh. for, you know, mooning around in collectively owned bookstores, buying, you know, U.S. out of El Salvador bumper stickers without knowing what they quite meant. You know what I mean? I I think it felt like Amelia that I really recognized, even though I wasn't participating in a community like that as an adult um, until much, much later. You knew your way around burdock soup or burdock loaf. Man, loaf, for yeah, totally. I mean, I, I feel like I, my own parents didn't necessarily serve up uh, burdock reduction, but I definitely babysat in the homes of uh, <laughs> families where only burdock was on the table.
0: <laughs> All right. So where did you begin this adaptation process? There are, are, what, 25 years of strips? There's 25 years, yeah. What was the first decision that you made? To be totally
1: honest, the breaking of the season, quote unquote, like the building of the the 10 episodes that would become this audiobook, I mean, it was like tapping, you know, a little ads into a block of schist. Like, it just <laughs> fell into place. It just felt so natural, like, to build the season around this character, Mo, that for those people who love the strip, you know, is the center, sort of, of this community and um, and her struggles basically to open up to love. Like, who doesn't love a story like that? I mean, it's a great story. And In fact, there is very little material in the audiobook. I mean, there are scenes and jokes and and bits that are added in to create um, the sort of feel of 10 discrete episodes but basically it's all raw material from those it's really from the first three years of allison's work on the strip so it kind of it it jumps around in time a little bit in order to make a b stories and c stories for our the other characters that we love clarice and tony Mm -hmm. lois and emma and harriet but it just it felt sort of easy, and I also, uh, as a Bechdel completist, I also pulled some material from the indelible Alison Bechdel, which is another amazing book mm. that is sort of a, like sundries, odds and ends, and other um, little and tiny that's a works of genius. commentary. Yeah, and with, uh, with essays uh, by Alison about her own work, and then also because I was such a. You know, a diehard and had learned the strip from the Firebrand books, each of the Firebrand books has a tiny little coda, has a little special bonus um, piece of content at the very end of it, which if you've only read Dykes to Watch Out For in the essential Dykes to Watch Out For, which is the large um, compendium, you've missed out these amazing little treats. And so yeah. one of the episodes in our season is pulled from one of those little special coda um, addendums to one of the small books, and that's the 10th episode
0: Oh, the 10th episode. The 10th episode was just called Down to the Skin. That is a... It's a oh, <clears throat> it, you're going to get hot under the collar talking about this. It's perfect oh My goodness, natural.
1: it's quite a steamy uh, little set of uh, line drawings. <laughs> and it's the <laughs> moment when, when Mo and Harriet uh, cross the Rubicon and end up in bed together. I mean, it's amazing that Alison... I don't know how... Well, I, I mean, I really as much time as I spent with her working on these episodes, I never really sort of asked her how it came about that she started to sort of do that, those little extra deep dives into the emotional or more intimate lives of the characters. But it's a pretty amazing sequence anyway. So if that's all her, you know, I just pulled it and mushed it around and restacked it. And
0: I'm glad that you mentioned the episodic nature because to me, that, you know, you, you, you're sort of talking as if that's a given. Well, of course, it was going to be 10 episodes. But, I mean, I, it, it didn't seem that obvious to me. Um, really? And it, and it works really beautifully. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, it's an audiobook. And you've kind of made it into a, a 10-part radio series, if you like. That's right. That's right. I did think of it as a radio series. Well, partly it was that, especially
1: in the early episodes, Alison... Employed a narrator, an omniscient narrator that had a kind of real oldie timey radio announcer quality. And I keyed Mm -hmm. into that quite early and I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get someone incredible to play the role of the narrator and we could use that to move us in and out from place to place. You know, in an audiobook, it's tricky to set the scene. You know, Um, our narrator could really help with that and could give us information about things that we don't see and then could also just like bring the hilarity, which certainly the unbelievable and phenomenal Jane Lynch, who we ended up uh, getting in for that role, has d- did in spades. I mean, it's really, the narrator is among my favorite parts of the audiobook.
0: It's morning in America, June 1987. Ronald Reagan is president. The Iran-Contra hearings are all over daytime TV. It's ten years before Ellen, five years before the founding of the Lesbian Avengers, and yet... In one small town in America, the sidewalks team with dykes. So we had Jane Lynch on working a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And when I asked her about the voice acting that she did, because obviously that's a big part of her career, of her portfolio, I believe people say these days. Mm -hmm. And she told us that she does it alone at home. Yeah. She doesn't work with her scene partners uh, typically. Now, in Dykes to watch out for. She's the narrator, so you wouldn't expect her to interact with with the other characters. So okay, so Jane Lynch might not have been. I actually know. Did she do it from home? As it were, she did it from home. Although we all
1: did, so she was in the mix. She was in there recording
0: with ah. on these
1: long collaborative Zoom sessions, or they were anyway conference sessions, directed by um, the amazing director Lee Silverman. And I mean, I watched Jane. She's such a super pro, you know. Like do take after take after take, just giving slight adjustments. Mm. Um, they make a big difference because it also sets the tone for the scene. And yeah. I think that you know what she knows how to do is a universe of things. So
0: yeah. So how did this zoom or these conference calls work? Um, was it almost like a, a table read while the tape was rolling? Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah. And then
1: we would stop. And then Lee would say, let's try it a little more like this, or give me a little more heat on this, or let's try some versions. And you know, uh, the actors were all very experienced in the medium. I mean, many of them had, like Jane, their own setups, which may well have been in a coat closet, but certainly looked professional <laughs> from my vantage point. And yeah. um, and actually, I was only present for some parts of that, I, yeah. as Allison was too. Like, we weren't there every single second, and Lee was yeah. holding that process and making sure that the material that they were able to sort of put onto the recording was full enough that we would have lots and lots of
0: options at the editing point. Oh, amazing! Now, you have this amazing cast. You knew who who was going to play Lois, who was going to be the voice of Josanna, who who was going to be Mo, which we should say is um, the extraordinary Carrie Brownstein. Thank you. Yes. What I mean, what what casting? Amazing. Um, but did knowing who was going to play the characters change your sense of the characters at all? Just in terms of like how they would sound and, and how you were writing for them, did you make any changes? I, you based know, on as that? a
1: matter of fact, the casting came so late in the process. From my perspective, you know, we worked—Susie and Allison and I and uh, and Christopher Farley and other uh, editors on the Audible side—worked on the scripts for a year and a half before production even began. Wow. So we were going back and forth and back and forth, and there was a lot of joke polishing and structural <laughs> um, work, and so they were pretty pretty much set by the point when we brought in actors to do table reads. And we made some tiny adjustments beyond that. Mm-hmm. And also my mm-hmm. fidelity was, I, I was working from the script backwards to the material more than anything, as opposed to from the script forward towards the actor and, I, and sort of dreaming of uh, casting choices that would then bring that original material all the way through into the earphones of listeners.
2: We'll be back with more of June's interview with Madeline George after this. Hey, listeners, Isaac Butler here. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but just really quickly. If you're enjoying what you uh, are hearing here and you don't already subscribe to the show, why not do us both a favor and click subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you do already subscribe to the show and you're wondering what you can do to help us out, the easiest thing you could do is leave us a good review or five stars if it's Apple or click the star thing. If you listen to Overcast, which is what I do, anything like that that you do helps New listeners find us through the magic of algorithms. All right, that's it for me. Let's get back to the show. Thank you so much for listening.
0: So we talked about how you decided, okay, I'm going to start here. I'm going to make this, these first three years, be the the arc of these 10 episodes. And it was really striking that... You know, we ended up in 1987 and some of the references were very specific, but also there's two sort of historical references like Sharon Kowalski, which, yeah. you know, I don't know actually know if people will remember that case anymore. But like, how did you kind of calibrate that level of we're taking you to 87 and we're going to talk like it, we're in 87? Like were you tempted to offer more explanation? Yeah, I think in some instances. Like we want we have a Merry Daily joke in there. Like we yes,
1: were like, will the Merry Daily joke play for the kids today? <laughs> yeah. Um but I I guess I think like my dream was that the the audiobook would do two things. One, it would satisfy and honor the fans the people who have been with the strip since the beginning who are you know among my idols in the world um, and then two that it would because the wild and beautiful world of queerness now is so different yeah but it's always good for young people to remember while they believe uh, with all their hearts that they are inventing everything anew <laughs> from out of nothing that they actually are a part of a lineage and yeah, yeah. I in, in the strip, um, the characters go to the 1987 National March yep. for Gay and Lesbian Rights on Washington, which was a seminal moment in um, the gay rights movement. It was the second march on Washington, not the first, but it was by far the biggest um, mm-hmm. ever LGBTQ march in, in American history. And in the strip mostly they it's like about them on the road going to it and then it's a sort of recap afterwards but we realized that we could take them there in the audiobook in a way that in fact we couldn't you couldn't do in any other form because we have these actors and we could bring the characters and then if we could get audio from the actual event we could just place them in it
0: Welcome to the 2nd National Lesbian and Gay March on Washington Welcome to all of our sisters and brothers. Welcome to the gay republicans and socialists and democrats. I'm not welcoming any gay republicans.
1: No, we'll see. That documentary footage which is a movie made by Barbara J. and Mary Jo Morrow of Dreamteller Video that that was on YouTube. So what I went to look and see, well, are there was there any home video taken of this, or were there any? You know, there's lots of news reports of it, mm. but the uh, Barbara and Mary Jo's um, documentary was like on the street, moving in mm-hmm. and out of the crowds, and is really pretty incredible to listen to. Wow. And I feel like the thing about the the comic strip that is so incredible is that it is funny, sexy, emotional, and so political. These characters, their politics are their emotional lives. Yeah. There's no yeah. daylight between those two things. And so yeah. that was a component of the characters and of the storytelling that I did not want to skip. And it, I've heard from people who have listened that that is actually a sort of an emotional high point of listening, that it's so moving to hear not just the celebrities, Jesse Jackson, Whoopi Goldberg, um, who are speaking at the on the mall, but to hear the sound of Act Up moving down the street, You yeah. know, um, yeah. to hear the sound of the Names being called at the first unveiling of the quilt, which is what happened at that event. It's just incredibly profound, um, yeah. and seeds of all of
0: our current movements
1: are being planted in those yeah. moments. Um, and, yeah. and
0: there are our characters, you know, right yeah. there. Uh. Yeah, and I mean, I was there, but the, I, I didn't go to all those things because you can't. Just like the characters there say, you know, you have to make a decision <laughs> about what you're going to what, what you're going to prioritize and what you're going to see. You can't go to all the things in real life, but. In the audio In the audiobook, you can you, pounce you around. Can, yeah. There were yeah. so
1: many parts that I wanted to include that we couldn't include, like the mass wedding that they had, which yes. was just amazing. Yes. Uh, extraordinary.
0: So in the first part of that last answer, you mentioned that you wanted to honour the readers of the original strip. Can you explain how you went about doing that? You know, in Hannah
1: Gadsby's Nanette, when she talks about feedback, how her people, meaning lesbians, give her unsolicited <laughs> feedback.
0: I don't think I'm very good at gay. <laughs> I'm not the only one who thinks that. I've, uh, <laughs> I've been getting a bit of um, negative feedback of late from my people, the lesbians. A bit of negative feedback. Because, uh, <laughs> gosh, don't my people love the feedback? Not... <laughs> not shy. Not shy with the
1: feedback. If your community doesn't get a lot of traction in the mainstream, but it's your whole world and you know that this is the other thing I will just want to say about Dykes to watch out for this material ages amazingly. These, these characters and this community where their concerns are, where their politics are, we're finally starting to catch up to it now in the mainstream on on the left. Like they were so, they had so much foresight and that's because they lived their values, you know, and they, really cared about inclusion, they really cared about justice, they really cared about equality. So I don't want to take those things lightly, and I don't want to take for granted a representation of this community that matters so much to now all of us. These are foundations for our progressive movement now. Um, I, I wanted people who had lived through those moments to be able to say, yeah, that looks like how I remember it slash is even slightly funnier than how I remember it.
0: Right, right. So this audiobook which again highly highly recommend and it's basically a full cast radio play or perhaps we should think of it as a series of 10 episodes of 10 uh, chapters or 10 10 episodes yeah 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 yeah. it runs for three hours we leave mo in a state of bliss but i for one was left wanting a lot more uh (laughs) Is there any chance of our getting more? I mean, I suspect that it's no mean feat to bring together the level of star power. I mean, again, not just the cast, you, Alison, Lee Silverman. Can we dream of the group being reunited for ten more chapters? Could the release of a new Dykes to Watch Out For audiobook be a new annual Pride Month ritual? I'm just throwing out some ideas here. Mike, can, can we hope for this? From your lips to Jeff Bezos's ears.
1: I mean I don't I guess I don't I don't know what the, the there's no plans currently and it is true that it was a multi year project to bring this to fruition. But um I, I will say that like having the same hope like I threw together a a version of the second season and I it's certainly easy to to do it I mean there's plenty of story to tell and I think we would all love it I I think there's always a question of whether Allison will be able to make a a, an animated series of Dice Mm -hmm, to watch mm -hmm. out for and if I think we we wouldn't want an audio version to step on that possibility so um, I'm sure there's The questions and the considerations are above my pay grade, but I would love it. I would love it.
0: (laughs) Madeline George, this was such a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on work. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a wonderful
2: conversation. When we come back, June and I will talk about how creating rules for your project, even when you're just making them up out of whole cloth yourself, can help you be more creative. June, before we talk about the actual interview, I just wanted to briefly, you know, because I am a middle-aged man, you are a middle-aged woman, and, you know, we have to have our grandparents on the porch moment, and that's to talk about the world of alternative weeklies and their comics, particularly three of them, Dykes to Watch Out For, Alison Bechtel, Matt Groening's Life is Hell, and... And uh, Linda Barry's Ernie Pooks Comique. But uh, there were uh, others out there, Julius Nipple, real estate photographer. I mean, they all had mm-hmm. crazy names like that. But But there's a whole world of serialized narrative and humor that you can really only discover in anthologies now. But it is still absolutely worth seeking out.
0: Totally. Some of it was weird and wacky. Some of it was surreal. Some of it was political. And a lot of it was like crazily ahead of its time. I think that's true of both Dykes to Watch Out For and Ernie Pook's Comique. If you look at those strips now, like from 30 years ago, they are incredibly relevant. Just amazing stuff. These days, I'll occasionally pick up a free paper when I come across one and I instinctively turn to the back pages to look for the comics And they're just not there anymore, sad to say. That kind of work has probably migrated to Patreon these days, or writers have just given up, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other places that you can find it. But I will say, if you like, you know, comics for adults and you haven't checked those particularly those three strips out in anthology form. It's, it's really worth looking up. You, you have many hours of pleasurable reading and <laughs> dykes to watch out for. I mean, it's so funny and you follow the characters as they age. It turns into like a radical leftist 30 something in the best possible way. It's really great. Um, sure. One thing Madeline said, to talk about the actual interview for a second, mm-hmm. I suppose, you know, one thing Madeline said, that this metaphor that I loved is sometimes things, you know, they drop in like an ad's, into a block of schist. And that's schist. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, You know, sometimes when you're being creative, shit just falls really into place. You know, sometimes your first idea is your best idea. And as much as we talk about revision and rethinking and everything, you know, it's okay if something feels right. You know, if the structure just comes to you and you're like, yeah, that's the structure, then you don't have to think about it anymore. Like the first sentence of my book never changed, for example. And it was the very first sentence I wrote. You know, I never revised it. I went back to it. I was like, no, no, that still works. I'm going to keep it. Uh, uh, Have you had those experiences, June, in your own work? Before
0: I answer that, one minute, please. All right, good. Of course, I had to go grab your book and check what your first sentence was. And it is, acting is a curious thing. I love that. That really does set up the inquiring, you might say, curious tone of the book. And I'm glad that you gave me that example because I was going to say, oh, that just doesn't happen with me. Uh, You know, I do. I rewrite a lot. So there's seldom much of anything left of my first drafts. But actually, the opening paragraph of my book has been there since the book proposal. And and I don't think it's changed. And, And like your first sentence, it kind of establishes the tone and the purpose of the book. Uh, it's about how lesbians don't have a, you might say, natural home and thus are particularly driven to create spaces for ourselves. So, mm. yeah.
2: Amazing. Amazing. And, of course, at the same time, just because the initial idea is good <laughs> doesn't mean you're off the hook for the rest of all the ideas you're going to have over the course of the uh, creative process, right? You still yeah. have to make the damn thing. And one thing that Madeline said <laughs> that I loved was she she was talking about going backward toward the material rather than forward to the actors because it was cast very very late but that part of that process was imagining who the actors playing the roles might be as a way of like figuring out the characters and yeah, look yeah. not all of us are writing for actors sometimes we're painting or we're writing a book or we're making a video game but one thing that can be really helpful that she's doing there that's an example of it imagining the conditions of production and who your collaborators might be, even if you don't know, even if those people <laughs> right. might never be involved, just to help you like get ideas. you know it can really help you take those next steps. It's like how uh, one of our guests, Nayland Blake, said they have to know what space the work of art will be displayed in before they can you know conceptualize it.
0: Yeah, I totally agree that you have to approach a project with openness. You know, you cannot, I think, go into something feeling that your vision is so pure and clear and just needs to be expressed. You're not going to take any notes from anyone. You're not going to work with anyone. You have to be prepared to interview people, you know, to work with an editor or something that I did not expect. that, But that's happened to me recently is kind of get information from people who took photos that you're hoping to use in the book, you know. These people will offer feedback or make requests or provide new information that maybe slightly challenges what you thought or maybe challenges it quite a bit. So, yeah, you've got to be open to that. I also think, though, that it's important that you retain your vision of this thing that you're creating. If your name is on the book cover or the exhibition catalog or the painting, this thing has to feel like... Something you can stand by, you know, the best version of that thing that you are capable of producing today, which might mean listening to feedback and not exactly ignoring it, but at least making a decision about what it is that you want to say.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, it strikes me that in a way it's like we're, we're talking about a thing we return to sometimes on this show, which is setting rules for yourself and your project. Yeah. And I loved how brave Madeline was about this one specific rule, which is that it is really set in 1987. And while the narrator can comment on stuff that's happening, then from the perspective of the future. The characters really are stuck in 1987. So they're not going to explain to one another who radical separatist Mary Daly is. They're not going to explain that an important custody case is an important custody case. They're just going to use the shorthand. The characters already know this information. Nothing drives me crazier as an audience member than when characters are saying exposition to each other, but the Mm -hmm. exposition they're saying is something all the other characters already know. No. Drives me insane. And in this case, the 1987 thing is very particular to this project. But every project has its rules. Sometimes they're implicit. Sometimes they're explicit. Sometimes you set them in advance. Sometimes you discover them during revision and apply them backwards. But if you can really be conscious and rigorous about those choices, I really think it actually opens doors I think that's where a lot of creativity comes from. And I'm just wondering, you know, especially since your own book is about a similar subject to uh <laughs> dykes to watch out for the, the true stories of lesbians, creating community and physical spaces over the, you know, in the late 20th century, I'm wondering if you had this experience in your writing of your book.
0: Well, first of all, I agree with you completely. The restrictions can be incredibly generative. You know, if the whole world is your playground, the chances are you're going to just be overwhelmed. So just from that very strict logistical point of view, having restrictions is just very helpful. But there's something else too that I think, this is going to, I fear, sound quite banal, but I also think is important when it comes to limitations. You have to know kind of how far you can go. You have to know your limits. You know, this can crop up in a lot of ways. The way this played out for me was that I am writing about six distinct locations. There are definite commonalities and resonances and threads that connect them. And I I hope I do make those connections. But each space also has its own history and scholarship. And I quickly became aware that I could go deep down rabbit holes on every single page, but that was going to produce a level of detail and specificity that would be an absolute necessity for a book that focused on only one of those spaces. There you're coming for the the crazy, you know, sidetrack details, but it would be counterproductive in what amounted to six, you know, let's just say 12,000 word explorations. So while I still had to do a lot of reading and thinking and talking to people so I could decide what made the cut, I was going to have a lot of material that I wasn't going to use, or I would write a lot of words that wouldn't make it into the book, even when those lost words were really hard to write. And on a purely informational level, I knew that from day one. In fact, I know for sure that it's something you told me when you were in the final stage of writing the method, but I had to live through it to kind of understand it in my bones. Like you have to know where you just stop, you know, like that. That's not going to be relevant. Well,
2: I mean, one rule, which is actually in your contract when you sign with the publisher, is an approximate word count, right? You know, I mean, you I think we had that conversation when I was busy cutting 25,000 words out of the book (laughs) and being like, what did I do to myself? Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think I'm one of those weird people who did not actually over deliver word count wise, but because I, I kind of was editing in my own own head probably a little bit too early. But yeah, you know, there are all kinds of limitations that you can set. Uh, one of them might be about scope. Uh, one of them might be about, you know, the these rules that you set for yourself. But you've got to. You've got to come up with something or else... I think you're going to turn out to be one of those projects that you kind of lose control of. And, you know, everybody knows some of those and it's it's honestly kind of tragic. And you you have to just do whatever you can to prevent yourself from being one of those projects.
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, that is all the time we have for this week. If you've enjoyed this show and you want to get a little bit more, then you could subscribe to Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash working plus today. You'll get bonus segments on shows like this one, bonus full episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and full access behind our paywall. It's a really great way to support what we do right here on Working, and you can sign up today once again at slate.com working plus.
0: Thank you so much to our guest, Madeline George, and to our producer to watch out for, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Nate's conversation with actor Miguel Cervantes, who is currently playing Alexander Hamilton on Broadway. Until then, get back to work.